0: everybody, welcome back to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So glad you're with me as we're beginning this exciting journey of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. If you missed the first two episodes, don't worry, we've got you covered. You can still jump in right now and you'll be able to understand everything that's going on. But the first two episodes were introductory, kind of laid some of the groundwork. You can catch those on the Relevant Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to actually start reading the letter together now. And I've chosen to kind of skip any any sort of discussion about the theological themes in the letter. If you read commentaries on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, scholars will spend a lot of time looking at the themes and kind of referencing which chapters he's talking about these themes, whether it's God's plan for Israel or, or Christian conduct, how to live I'd rather just deal with those as we discuss the letters we go through as they come up. I will say this, though. You can kind of divide Romans into two main sections. And um, speaking of those commentators, Scott Hahn and his commentary on Romans says that in chapters 1 through 11, St. Paul does most of his teaching. That's where he kind of gives an exposition of the Catholic Christian faith. And then in the remaining chapters, 12 through 16, it's a lot of exhortation about the Christian life, how to live. As Scott Hahn says, belief and behavior, catechesis and conduct are the two main panels of the epistle. So really this is about faith and morals. And that's what you have to believe in order to be a Catholic. You have to believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches about faith and morals. Faith is what to believe, what we actually believe the content of our faith the creeds that we have, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, et cetera, they are uh, kind of our beliefs distilled, if you will. And those come from Scripture. It's really biblical concentrate, if you will, like a tide pod. In just a few uh, short lines, we can encapsulate a lot of truth. And St. Paul does this in his letter as well. You know, Hahn notes that nobody's really able to pack so much truth into one sentence as St. Paul. A lot of very incredible themes. Um, just uh wow it's it's really mind-boggling what what he's able to say that doesn't mean that we can't understand it though we're going to unpack it for you so faith and morals faith is what to believe morals is how to live so essentially when you read the catechism of the catholic church for example the section on morality is really the the commandments of the church explained expanded as it were. So faith and morals, infallible Catholic teaching on that. It's what we got to believe. And that's really what St. Paul does in Romans. He talks about what to believe, our faith, and how to live it. So this is really good. Let's Let's jump in now to the very beginning, the introduction of Romans. So grab your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Now this is a little bit different from the standard opening lines of a letter. Because in most letters in the ancient world, they would, you know, first address, you know, hey, who, who's sending this letter? Who am I writing to? A, a greeting is given. And then usually the writer will wish you well. Hey, I, I hope you <laughs> hope you're blessed. I, I hope I hope uh, you got that great big promotion at work. I, I hope uh, you have the winning lottery numbers. Uh, I, I wish you nothing but prosperity. Uh, but that's not exactly what St. Paul's going to do. He wishes them something much, much greater, and he wants, he's not just wishing for them, he's praying for them something much, much greater than any kind of material benefit, the supernatural benefits of grace and faith. And he's kind of giving his resume too, because remember, Paul doesn't really know these people personally. They've heard of him. He's heard of them. Obviously, the whole world, as we talked about in the last episode, has heard about the faith of the church in Rome but they've never met. So Paul almost has to give them his LinkedIn profile, as it were. He has to kind of give them his resume, and not only his resume, but also he has to give some of Jesus's credentials as well. So let's open this up and look at the first seven verses, the little introduction to St. Paul's letter to the Romans. He writes, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised previously through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel about his son descended from David according to the flesh, but established as son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness through resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received the grace of apostleship, To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, among whom are you also who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all the beloved of God in Rome, called to be holy, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a, a great way to start off the letter. And the first thing he does in the first verse is Paul introduces himself, and he describes himself. Interesting the words he chooses. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And this Greek word that's underlying, that's translated in English as slave, and maybe in your Bible it says servant or something like that, depending on which English translation you're using, it's the Greek word doulos. And It's not just, it could be a reference to slaves in in the Roman world. Of course, uh, there are many types of of slaves and many different conditions that one could find oneself in as a slave. Some slaves had a lot of freedom compared to others. But it's not just a slave or a servant in that sense. Paul's also thinking of the Old Testament. He's thinking of servants of the Lord that are described in kind of the same way. Moses is one example. If you look at uh, the book of Joshua, of course, Joshua being the successor of Moses, it talks about the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. So Moses did what God wanted him to do. And then Joshua himself in the book of Joshua it talks about his death. It says, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. That's Joshua twenty four twenty nine. King David as well, Psalm 89 verse 4 is a good example of this. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. And then, of course, all the prophets as well are called servants of God in various places in the Old Testament. But he's not just a slave of Jesus Christ who, who, who does the will of our Lord. He also says this. He says, called, Paul is called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God. Now, Paul, of course, became an apostle in a different way. As he as he mentions in another one of his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about the resurrection and, and the appearances of Jesus, he says, last of all, Jesus appeared to me as to one abnormally born, as to one born out of time. Maybe a uh, you know, a late pregnancy, something like that. No, what he really is talking about is the fact that he didn't become an apostle the same way that the 12 did Peter and James and John and all the others. He didn't know Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was called on the road to Damascus. Jesus had already ascended into heaven, was glorified at the right hand of the Father. And he says that I saw Jesus later on in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. If you read through your New Testament, this is uh, the greeting that he gives in his letter to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. In other words, this isn't a human idea. I just didn't decide to do this on my own. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, it was God's idea to call him. And then later on in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, Brethren, I would have you know that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself commissioned Paul as an apostle after his ascension in a different way. But nonetheless, he's got those credentials. And it's important for him to to lay them out there. So in Galatians 1.15, he actually says that this was God's plan from long before he was born, from all eternity. He says, when he who had set me apart before I was born, and had called me through his grace. So that God's got a plan for each one of us. And it's we, we need to work with him. We need to partner with him to discover what that is. Uh, but may his will be done. It was certainly God's will for Paul to be an apostle and to minister to the entire world, really, through his letters and in person through much of the known world at that time, his missionary journeys. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So when you look at the prophets, the same is true for them. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's just so beautiful. The prophet Isaiah as well. Uh, He says this in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So God has a plan for each human person, a destiny. And Cardinal Newman talked about this a lot too. He said, he has a definite service for me. And it's up to each one of us to to figure out what that is. It's going to be different probably than Paul's call, but nonetheless, it's just as important in the grand, economy of god's salvation for us to figure out what that is because a lot is hinging on our holiness a lot is depending on how well we're corresponding to the gospel of god people are waiting for jesus christ and they're going to meet him through you and me and how we live our life and not not to put too much pressure on you because god is going to give us the grace uh, to make that happen so membership has its privileges Uh, just like MasterCard, and it also has responsibilities attached. And his responsibility, St. Paul's, was to bring the gospel to the Jew and also to the Gentiles and to be that incredible missionary, the greatest of all time. Now, he also says here in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he says that, I'm called to be an apostle set apart for, for what? For the gospel of God. This is the content of his message, the gospel, the good news. Now, this word gospel actually comes from a, a Greek word, euangelion. And from that word, you can probably see this, euangelion. It sounds an awful lot like evangelism, evangelize, evangelist. It, it, it's really that where this, these English terms come from. And the good news in the Roman world meant a particular thing. Whenever good news was proclaimed in the Roman Empire, it usually had something to do with the Caesars, with some world-changing event. Have you heard the good news? The Romans have won a great uh, battle against the barbarians, You know, led by Maximus the gladiator. No, probably not. But if you've seen gladiator, you've seen this, the, the glory of the Roman Empire. Whenever a new Caesar took the throne, Caesar Augustus has ascended to power. This is published as good news throughout the empire. And it's interesting that the New Testament kind of hijacks this term and says, you know, really the real good news is about Jesus Christ. In In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and by the way, written to the same city, Mark's gospel was originally addressed to Rome, uh, just as St. Paul's letter to the Romans. The very first line of that document is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's, it's incredible because Mark has... Um, uh, Grab the attention of the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. He says Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means Messiah. He's the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. And also, it's good news for the Gentiles as well. It means that the true good news does not consist in Caesar on his throne in Rome, but rather a man who seemed to be the most powerless person in the empire, the crucified man, the man who was nailed to the cross, naked and bleeding. This guy is someone I'm supposed to entrust my life to, and that's really what the gospel is all about—explaining why that is the case. It's an apology for the cross, as one writer says. But this is the good news, world-changing truth through Jesus Christ. But also, to uh, this, this term, "good news" means something in the Old Testament as well. And, and Han points out, if you look at the the Book of Isaiah, this term pops up again and again and again in the Greek. Translation of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. It's good news. And we see it again in Isaiah 60, verse 6. We see it in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And it goes on. And Jesus really applies this to himself, that he is that anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means, the anointed one. And so there's a lot of depth here. And even in this one sentence, the opening line of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, as Paul is kind of telling them who he is and who Jesus is, that he is the Christ. So let's look at verse two. St. Paul's talking about the, the good news of the gospel, verse 2, which he promised beforehand, God promised beforehand, through his prophets in the holy scriptures. This is really important because all throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to demonstrate that this was all part of God's plan. It's all part of the plan, like the Joker said in The, the Dark Knight. Salvation history. It doesn't always repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme, as Mark Twain said. God has a plan of salvation, and it's always the same in all ages. But it culminates, of course, when he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the Incarnation. Let's look at the next uh, couple of verses here, verses 3 and 4 in Romans 1. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and designated Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is, a, this is important. A lot of people think that these verses, when it says that, hey, Jesus was declared or designated Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, some people believe in this heresy. It's a false teaching, and it's called adoptionism. This idea that Jesus was just an ordinary guy, but then at the resurrection, that's when God adopted him. Oh, okay, now I'm going to elevate you to to being my son. Or some people think it happened when Jesus was baptized and that voice came from heaven. Ah, you are my son, my beloved. But before that, he wasn't the divine son of God. That's not the case. That's not the case. Uh, He was always uh, the divine son of God. And we can talk about things like, you know, this is a highfalutin term, the hypostatic union of in the one divine person of Christ, his divine nature and his human nature. It's always been together. But really what he's talking about here is he's talking about the resurrection at Easter. And this is really, really important uh, that he's explaining uh, the resurrection, the anointing of Jesus. Here's what he says here. He was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul's trying to get at here is he's trying to show how Jesus fulfills the promised kingdom to David, that David's throne would always endure forever. But that's kind of hard to do When every single king, including David himself, has died. It it failed to reign forever. That's not the case with Jesus because he is descended from David. But because of the resurrection, he lives forever. So his throne will endure forever. So this is, once again, this is a major fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, We can see this in Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. What about Psalm 89 verse... Oh, I'm not going to do that one. How about, let's skip ahead, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. This is, of course, the famous Annunciation with the Archangel Gabriel speaking to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The reason why he can reign forever and the reason why there is no end to his kingdom and his reign is because of his powerful resurrection from the dead. And one of the things that Paul will say later on in Romans, in Romans chapter 6, verse 9, he will say, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion or power over him. So this is very, very important. Remember that in Rome, the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And this is especially important uh, for the Jews to know that That Jesus is the promised successor to David, who will reign over his kingdom. But here's the thing about David's kingdom. David's kingdom wasn't just for the Jews. It was actually for the whole world, for the Gentiles as well. Most people don't understand this. But we're going to explain this in the next episode of the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. So I hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but we've run out of time for this segment. But we're going to go now to our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's do it. Okay, as we open up our Q&A session here on this episode of The Faith Explained, I want to remind you that you can send me your question. I really appreciate getting your emails, your questions, your comments. Uh, you can write to me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. That's the email. You can also try finding me on the Twitter slash X app, and my handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And this question isn't so much uh, one that was written into me, but uh, it was a question that i that I kind of overheard in a certain sense, and I and I, I, I thought it was really intriguing, and I thought I'd deal with this on the show because I, I really never thought of this before. But someone who is non Catholic, who is thinking about becoming a Catholic, maybe thinking about joining the RCIA program and being baptized at Easter, was wondering. Do I have the right to even pray along with everybody else at Mass? Of course, the, the Mass is the highest form of prayer that we have—the uh, Divine Liturgy at Mass. This person is basically saying, "I'm not a Catholic. I'm thinking about becoming one. I don't know if, I, I, if I'm ready, but can I can I pray with you guys at Mass? Can I can I say the words?" Uh, that is actually a, a really really good question. I, I would say that. In response to that, if you believe that this is true, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, if you believe in the Catholic faith as laid out in the Apostles' Creed, if you come to a point of belief in that, then I would say, yeah. Say that with all your heart. Join in those prayers in the Mass. Now, of course, you won't be able to receive the Eucharist. And depending on where you are, the local custom, Uh, Just as it was done in the early church, uh, some outposts of the Catholic church still do it this way. If people are in the RCIA program, they actually have to leave the liturgy after the liturgy of the word. Of course, the mass is made up of the liturgy of the word. Hey, it's the greatest Bible study on earth. And then the liturgy of the Eucharist. So we kind of dine, if you will, at the, the table of the word. And then, of course, the table of the Eucharist, the altar. We are fed with the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And historically, catechumens, and these are people who are not yet Catholic, but they're being catechized, they would leave the Mass at that point. And some churches still do it that way; they'll have private instruction in, in the hall or some other room or something like that. And uh, but it's not always the case. Sometimes the catechumens will stay for the entire Mass. They just don't receive uh, the Eucharist. They can make spiritual communions and things like that. So catechumens do believe but they're not yet members of the church. So that if you believe this stuff, you can certainly say it, and you can pray it uh, with all integrity. It got, got me thinking about where this word comes from, catechumen, in the early church. In fact, it actually is in the Bible. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, this is what St. Paul says. He writes, Let him that is instructed in the word Communicate to him who instructs him in all good things. And when he says, let him that is instructed in the word, in Greek it's holkatechumenos, katechumenos. And that's where the word katechumen comes from. It's really interesting. You also see this, this verb where we get the, the underlying verb, where we get the term catechumen. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19. We find it in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. Acts of the Apostles, also written by Luke, Acts 18, verse 24. So just as we said um, on one of our Faith Explained episodes, talking about the letter to the Romans, Romans is about what to believe and then how to live. It's very similar to the Catholic faith in general. Faith and morals, what to believe and how to live. Well, in order to know what to believe, you have to be taught it. Um, And now St. Paul kind of uh, was taught in a sort of different way. Jesus Christ uh, gave it to him by divine revelation, but we have to kind of study it. Um, this is what Jesus commanded, actually, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Teach them, he says, to observe all things that I have commanded you. Everything that I've taught you, you've got to pass it on. So as the church got going, as the church got rolling, Uh, throughout history, that's exactly what the apostles did and their successors, their followers, and and other ordinary everyday Catholics that taught their friends and family and spread the good word of the gospel. Now, depending on who you're dealing with, if someone was from a Jewish background and well-versed in the scriptures, it might have been easier because you have that kind of common foundation. Then the pagans, of course, uh, would come in as well. But as the church age continued to uh, move throughout history, especially after uh, the Edict of Milan, the legalization of Christianity in the 4th century, there had to be some sort of organized instruction period uh, for those who are catechumens. And, and that's where we kind of get this idea of catechist, teacher, catechumen, and eventually the uh, tradition of baptizing new converts at Easter in a program that kind of lasts throughout the liturgical year. And it's important that people get that, that foundation. Uh, because for the very simple, And I've seen this happen even in our time, uh, having been involved in teaching RCIA. It's always sad that I've seen this happen where people, they go through the class, they say they believe, they receive their sacraments at Easter time, and about a month later, they've completely disappeared. Uh, that's a great tragedy, and I think there's a lot of reasons why these things happen. But we have to be sure that we know what we believe and why we believe it, because there are a lot of temptations, a lot of dangers and a lot of chances that we have to give up the faith, to apostatize, and to, to really just flake out. And we can't do that. Um, and so it's really important to have that instruction given to people. And that's why we have the RCAA program. And this is why we have shows like The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio, so that we can try to explain the gospel, uh, try to learn it better for ourselves, so that we can also share it with those around us who need to know the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth that sets us free. Thanks for joining me today on the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. If you have a question for our Q&A segment, you can send it to me by email. faith at relevantradio.com is the address, faith at relevantradio.com. Find me on Twitter at Kale Clark. And hey, I'll join you later today live for the Kale Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio. I'll see you then.